Um, uh, turn in your Bible with me, please, if you're in the book of Psalms still. Just turn over uh, to the right a few pages to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet, and uh, this chapter retells, uh, recalls and recounts his call to ministry. And um, you know the story, but uh, let me read it to you, and uh, it will serve as an introduction of sorts to our topic today. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, these these awesome creatures, angelic creatures, stood above him, each of them having six wings. With two of them he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as you can picture this, this great vision, you can picture Isaiah. There's the Lord on his throne. He is high. He is exalted. The, the train of his robe is filling the space of the throne room. These amazing, awesome, horribly, terribly amazing creatures are are hovering, flying about God's presence, and they call back one to the other about God's otherness, His His holiness, His His sinlessness, His character, His righteousness. All that is caught up in that word holy. There is no one like God. It is it, holiness is God's divine otherness. It's that He's in a category of His own. He is unlike anyone or anything else. And they they call back and forth about God's holiness, drawing attention to His great uniqueness. Uh, they call Him here the Lord of hosts. That's, that's God in His BDUs. This is God in His army or military attire. This is, this is the, the commander-in-chief of all of the hosts of the armies of heaven in His great military fatigues. And the whole earth, the seraphim remind us, are full of His greatness on display, the the weightiness of His character, the splendor of His majesty, all encapsulated in this this super-saturated word we know simply as glory. But that's not all. As these seraphim speak back to one another of God's holiness, as Isaiah is taking in, I mean, you, you can you can experience something of the the panic attack that he must have been beginning to have as he takes in, as his senses are on overload. Because verse four tells us that as the seraphim are shouting, uh, speaking back to one another, the thresholds of the very temple with which Isaiah resides in begin to tremble. There's an earthquake. The, sh- there is a, the ground underneath him is shaking. The thresholds are trembling as the voices of these angelic... Can, can you imagine something? The, the volume and frequency that is so profound, it causes structural problems 
in the building in which you reside in. I mean, that's, that, that's, you know, maybe some of you have been to an air show and a fighter jet goes over and you can feel the rattling in your bones or, or maybe it's a, a great, uh, um, industrial piece of equipment and, you know, the, the resonant frequency just kind of, uh, you know, you can, you can feel it in your body. Well, imagine this, but, but to such an exponential degree that literally the place starts falling down around you. And that's not all. As Isaiah is taking this in, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He, he is overwhelmed by the seraphim in their awesome splendor and the voices of them shouting out, crying out about God's holiness and His glory and the foundations are trembling. The earthquake is happening and on top of that, the temple's filling with smoke. And you know, and this is this is not some Christian rock concert, a guy with a fog machine. I mean, this is this is divine smoke here. And Isaiah is so overwhelmed, he can barely get out a word. But when he does, he can only conclude one thing. I'm a dead man. That's what it means there when it says in verse 5, Woe is me, I am ruined. Literally, what this means is Isaiah says, Okay, this is how I'm going, I guess. And we come to understand something of the majesty and holiness and greatness and overwhelming nature of God. Why did Isaiah think he was going to die? Because I am a man of unclean lips. That means he recognizes he is a broken sinner. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He represents a nation of sinners. And my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. What would your reaction be? You think about this? I think sometimes when we're children, we think it would be really cool to meet God. What would it be like if you met God in His unattenuated, unblocked, fully seen, not God behind the curtain, but God on the center stage of His majesty? You would have one reaction, just like Isaiah did. You would be so overwhelmed, so struck with fear, and you would think, I'm going to die. Because that's who God is. God is not some domesticated, you know, nice guy who just doesn't happen to sin. Uh, this is the King. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the great I am. This is the one who spoke and it came to pass. This is the one who holds the whole universe in the palms of his hands and makes sure it runs every day. This is the one who sends lightning and rain. This is the one who alone forgives sin. With that in mind, guys, I want to talk today about what it means to learn and to grow in the fear of the Lord. Because I don't think most Christians have a category for the fear of the Lord the way the Bible describes it. 
We, we, we think Jesus is like Mr. Rogers. You know, he's a sweater-clad nice guy that just wants you to be nice to everybody. You know, we think of God as a wonderful, adorable, heavenly father that just wants to cuddle up with you. And what's amazing is, in Christ, he is that wonderful father. But when we get to know God, we, we start with the wrong picture. We start with who he is in terms of the benefits in Christ. And we don't start where the Bible starts with God in his raw, holy, glorious, overwhelming majesty. And even in trying to describe this, you know, the, the scripture writers and me, you, how, do you, how do you describe the indescribable? How do, you, how do you begin to characterize somebody that if you were to see him today, you would fall on your face praying that you would go quickly? Not, not because he is bad, but because he is so good in the face of our fallenness and brokenness and sin and rebellion. I think we need to rediscover what it means to fear the Lord. And I think we need to re- that means we need to recapture something <clears throat> of who He is biblically. We, we need to de-domesticate the divine. So come with me on a little journey. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because last time in Proverbs, we, we saw the bookends of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then the other bookend, the end of the first main section in chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what we're going to do now is we're going to launch into the rest of the book of Proverbs. And we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. The, the, the Proverbs um, cover almost every topic of life. And we're going to do that. We're going to talk about friends. We're going to talk about communication. We're going to talk about addictions. We're going to talk about family and finances and folly. We're going to talk about what it means to avoid sexuality that is sinful. We're going to uh, uh, look at anger and friends and, and all this sort of thing. But before we can launch into that, we, we have to have a solid platform. And that solid platform that we build all those things upon in our Christian life is a fear of the Lord. So I think it's worth taking some time and, and talking about it. I find, guys, if I can just be very honest with you, I find that the, the, the fear of the Lord, to me, is one of the most fascinating topics in the Bible. And one of the most absolute difficult topics to get your arms around. So, so you pray for me as I try to present this to you, and, and I'll pray for you, but we need to grow in this. We need to see God as He is and gain and grow in some measure of appropriate fear for him. Okay? So, here we go. Let me ask you a question. Is God a threat to you? Is God a threat to you? I I had the privilege of uh, sharing the gospel to somebody that was coming to our door wanting something the other day. And as we talked about Christianity and heaven and, and you know spiritual truth. This dear lady um, did not know the biblical gospel, 
But God was a friend, not a threat in her mind. And if you don't know the biblical gospel, and if you aren't embracing the biblical gospel by grace through faith, God is not your friend. He is a threat. But again, don't, don't take my word for it. I wanna, I wanna walk you through, uh, some texts of scripture here. Uh, turn with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And, uh, we're just gonna look at some of these. And uh, we're, we're, we're wanting this morning to learn and grow in the fear of the Lord. That, that's the, the point, and we're going to build a foundation upon which our study of Proverbs will continue. But we're going to go all over the Bible looking at this. It's a wonderful theme. If you like to track themes in Scripture, uh, this is a great theme to, to wander through the Bible uh, looking for. And you'll see it all over the place. We, we tend to think of the fear of the Lord as something in the Old Testament, and it is, uh, I think, uh, a dominant theme there. But we see it in the New Testament also. But but notice this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to spend a fair amount of time in Deuteronomy this morning. Uh, let me just introduce you to this. Is God a threat to you? And, I, and I'd love for you to just answer that question personally. Do you view God as a threat? And... Um, I want, I want to let the Bible, as, as you answer that preliminarily in your mind, I want to go through some verses and I want to let the Bible try to answer that question for us. Okay? Is God a threat? Um, you guys understand that, that there, there are churches today, to call God a threat, they would say, is heresy. And, and I think that illustrates at least in part the problem. Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses and the Israelites are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember, they are seeing the fire on the mountain. Remember the pyrotechnic display that goes on, the lightning and the smoke? There was an earthquake there, a trumpet blast. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing event that the Israelites had gathered around the mountain. They Remember, they've been delivered out of Egypt, and God has taken them into the wilderness, led them to Sinai where he promised he would give their law give him his law, and reveal himself to them. In fact, we see in the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses rehearses the um, uh, the Ten Commandments. And then Moses reminds them of those moments around Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 23. Let's look at verse 23 together. And when you heard the voice, talking about God on Mount Sinai, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, and you came near, and all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire, and we have seen today that God speaks with man, yet He lives. Now stop right there. That communicates to us the worldview of God's people. They did not expect that God would speak to them directly and they would live to tell about it. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. You, you, don't, you don't get too close to the consuming fire of God and not be burned. Right? You don't, you don't waltz into the presence of perfect divine holiness in your unholiness and live. Look back at the text. Now then, why should we die? 
For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord God any longer, then they will die. Can you imagine that? You think, I would love to spend an afternoon with Jesus. No, you wouldn't. Not in your sin, you wouldn't. They're saying, God, stop talking. The more you talk, the longer you talk, the more likely it is we are not going to survive this encounter. Stop talking. This is what God, through Moses, is recounting to the people. Listen to this. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near, go near and hear all that the Lord our God says? Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear it and do it. The Israelites say, we're not going. Moses, you go. And then you come back and report to us. That's a much better plan. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people. Uh Uh-oh, God heard him over, you know overheard them talking about him. I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. And then God says this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Wow. Does that reset your view of God a bit? Does that challenge how you think about God? We see here, it is right to see God as a threat. In fact, there's something wrong with you if you encounter the holy, awesome, perfect majestic God in your sin and you don't feel threatened. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 12, after the Israelites have grumbled and grumbled and grumbled to the prophet Samuel, give us a king, or the judge Samuel, give us a king, give us a king. No, you don't want a king. No, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel says, no, you don't want a king. It is bad for you. It is not the will of God. Do not. And they grumbled and they complained. And Samuel finally said, okay. And they gave him a king. And Samuel said, I want you to see what God thinks of your decision. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 18. You don't need to turn there, just listen. Samuel wanted to prove to the Israelites that God considered their request evil. 1 Samuel 12, 18 says this. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Samuel says, watch this. You want me to show you that God doesn't like your request? Watch this. I'm going to talk to God, and he's going to bring thunder and rain. And Samuel calls on God, and immediately there's thunder and rain that pours down on the people. And the people go, And all the people, the text tells us, greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord so that we may not die. 
For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Is God a threat? You better believe he's a threat to people in their sin. Genesis 3, can you imagine God and the first man and the first woman enjoying perfect fellowship together? Sin comes into the world. They rebel against him. God sends them out of the garden. And what does God do? He places one of those creatures like the one we saw in Isaiah chapter 6, except this one has a sword. And and not like, you know, Conan. Not like, you know, Gladiator or something like that. But it's a flaming sword. It's, It's a divinely supernatural sword that will slay you upon approaching God's garden. We say God is a threat. God is a threat. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. Turn to me, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. Because sometimes we think, you know, God was kind of in a bad mood in the Old Testament. And then he kind of gets over that mood in the New Testament. And we have, you know, nice Jesus and, you know, he loves children and, and likes to, you know, tell us to be nice and wear sweaters and things like that. Um, that is, that is not the biblical Jesus. Some of you are going, who's Mr. Rogers? If you're a millennial, talk to your parents about that, okay? It's true, isn't it? Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. He has just warned people of the leaven of the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy and false doctrine. Chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know, when I was a kid, there was a, a campaign. The whole uh, it, it was really a movement. It started kind of in the sports arena. I played sports, and, and then there was a whole apparel. No fear. Remember that? Right? Um, that's stupid. <laughs> because no fear means you live in a fantasy land devoid of the most basic human understanding. And that is, who am I in light of my Creator? So is He a threat to you? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Is He a threat? Yes, I hope you see, He is a threat. He is horribly, terribly, amazingly a threat. He is a consuming fire. He is the Lord of hosts. He, he is the one who is holy, holy, holy. He is the one under which even a prophet of God says, I'm a dead man. Simply because I've seen him. So, let's personalize that. Is he a danger to you? And the answer is yes, comma, unless. 
We start there, guys. We start with God is a threat. We come into this world with our God being a threat to us, not a friend to us. We come into this world on the other side of the battle lines of God. And God is a threat to you. He is a danger to you. He is a danger to everyone in humanity unless, unless Romans chapter 8 verse 1 applies to you. Okay? Now watch the change here. Chapter 8 verse 1. You guys know this and we've talked about the gospel. Chapter 1 through 7 is all about the gospel. Terry will expand on that a bit later on. Therefore, there is now no Say it. Condemnation. What does that mean? Look up for a second. I want you to think about it like this. There is no longer a threat. There is no longer a danger for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has paid your debt and he has clothed you in his own very righteousness. So that, watch this, so that the very holiness that made God a threat to you is now the holiness that you reflect because of Christ. Do you see that? The the laser that would annihilate you of God's holiness is now uh, something you reflect to the praise of His glory. But we need to think about that. We need to think about that. And what that does, and this is what's so fascinating about the fear of the Lord as a subject. We start there. God is a threat. He is a consuming fire. He is a danger. He is not your friend. He he is... He is the one with whom we have to do. But in Christ... Something amazingly changes. There is no condemnation. The debt has been paid. The punishment has been given to Christ instead of us. And His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And and we get adopted into His family. And there's new life. And even His very Spirit. And now we have access to the throne of God. He, he, He calls us now, as Jesus does, His friends. Instead of His enemies. And what that does to fear is it transforms it. Now, you need to get this. This is is so much the point. It does not remove fear. It transforms fear. It it changes fear from a, a threat of danger to an overwhelming awe of worship, of love, of allegiance and trust. And that is, my friends, very, very good news. Because we don't live without a fear of the Lord. We live in the fear of the Lord. But it's a transformed fear. Okay. Now, how do we grow in that fear? 
That, that's, that's, that's the background. That, that's, in a sense, the introduction there, okay? So how do we grow in that? We say, I get it. I understand that. How do we grow in that? Because if you were to say today, do I live in awe and love and allegiance and worship of this great God who has not only loved me, but has sent his son and died for me, do I fear that God like I ought to? Do I walk in constant love and worship and allegiance, fully aware of this God who has adopted me? And if not, how do you grow in that fear? Well, believe it or not, the Bible tells us exactly how to do that. And this, this is what's so fun about studying the Bible. It's like, I want to grow. How do I grow? Well, the Bible has an answer for that, right? We say there is an app for that. We say the Bible has an answer for that. Okay, everything, right? So watch how this works. And we won't, we won't get a chance to go through all of this, but I want to prime the pump on this. The first way that God, the Bible tells us to grow in godly fear, and this is going to shock you, is to study creation. To study creation. We grow in the fear of the Lord when we grow in our view of God and what He does, what He makes, what He sustains. Because it makes us smaller as he becomes greater in our minds. Okay. Now turn back to that psalm that we started off with this morning in Psalm 33. We'll just look at a few examples here and we gotta kinda keep moving, but, um, this is so, so interesting. Do you wanna grow in the fear of the Lord? Then study creation. Study creation as it is talked about in the Bible. Study creation here. I mean, creation is all around you. Do, do you like stuff in the world? And this is not just for, for you science geeks. This is creation is all around you. And part of the reason we do not have the fear of the Lord that God intends for us to have is we got this sort of tunnel vision in life. And we get in our routine and we just kind of do our thing and, you know, it's school and work and family and paying the bills and we just kind of go through life, Cowboys football, you know, and we just, we do all that. And the Bible says, stop it. Look, open your eyes around, study and expect, inspect the creation and stand in awe of what God has made and what he sustains. I mean, listen to the, the argument of the psalmist here in Psalm 33, back to the text where we looked at, verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Stop right there. Have you ever looked at pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope? Have you ever looked at, you know, the, the latest NASA, uh, uh, you know, images and stuff like that? Well, whatever they're studying, some, you know, black hole or some, you know, new galaxy that's discovered or, you know, new resolution on the rings of some of the planets. And, and, and we say, man, even if you're not a science person, you go, that's pretty cool. How did that happen? How did your body happen? How did your eye happen? How did your brain happen? How did the hydrological system that affected us last night, how does that happen? How does that work? You know, we got Doppler 4 radar that, that is only mildly accurate. Because we can't even begin to understand this thing called rain and the seasons and thunderstorms. And, you know, we get, we get better every year. But no one's mastered that. No one will ever master that. How does all this happen? Chapter 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. He just spoke it into existence. By the breath of his mouth all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Can you imagine that? 
Think of the size of God's divine hands to gather all the waters of the seas together. You say that's a metaphor. Well, of course it's a metaphor, but it makes the point. You're supposed to go, man, there's no way. At least for me. Can you just stop and think about that? Let, let your let your mind go, and it freezes. And you go, I don't have a category for that. That's too big. But the psalmist isn't done. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. So not only can he gather them all together, but he has this massive you know, storage system to put all the oceans of the world in, should he choose to. What is the result of that? How do we respond? Watch this. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. If you're not growing in the fear of the Lord, it's because your eyes are not open to the amazing wonder of creation that God amplifies that God displays that he runs for you in general revelation every day. So that's one thing to do. Study the creation. I've given you some passages there to think about. The second way is to study deliverance. If we want to grow in the fear of the Lord, the second answer of the Bible is to study deliverance. Um, you don't need to turn there. Let me, let me tell you a story. Exodus chapter 14. What's happened? The ten plagues have come, right? All this horrible stuff designed to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. They've been in slavery for 40 years. This is, this, or this is, um, well, actually longer than that. And they've been in slavery and God is bringing his, his spokesperson Moses and finally he kills the firstborn. You remember that? The tenth plague. Passover, all that, and they go in pursuit, they, they leave, the, the Israelites leave, and Pharaoh changes his mind, he sends the army afterward, they come to the Red Sea, and they're looking back, and they're going, what are we going to do, here comes the army, God said he was going to deliver us, God tells Moses, take your staff, hold it out over the water, part the Red Sea, and so he did, and I don't, I don't know, that, um, can you picture that? I know you're thinking of the movie The Ten Commandments or um, you know, there's modern versions of that. But, okay, the Red Sea is no small body of water. We're not, this is not the Brazos River here, okay? I mean, this is, this is a massive, massive body of water. And can you imagine with your family, for fear of your life, you're walking on the riverbank while you have 20, 30, 50, 100 200 foot of water on either side of you that is divinely being held up so it doesn't fall on you. And all two and a half million of the Israelites cross on dry land. They get to the other side. Here comes the army. God once again tells Pharaoh, hold out your staff. He holds out his staff and all millions of gallons of water come crashing down and drown the entire Egyptian army. And as you and I, let's say you and I are Israelites, we're sitting there on the banks of the river. We're cold. We're wet. Our kids are crying. They're scared. You know how this is. You know, they're crying. They're scared. You're trying to give comfort. And as, as you're doing that, you're looking and you're seeing dead Egyptian bodies floating by the water and their horses and chariot parts and 
You see it? And in Exodus chapter 14, God says this through Moses. And as the Israelites saw the great deliverance of God, they feared the Lord. And they believed in his servant Moses. Why? Because that amazing display of deliverance created fear. It created that mix of, of reverence and, and scared and awesome and worship and relief and amazement. So study deliverance. The most amazing deliverance, I do want you to turn here, is Colossians chapter 1. The most amazing deliverance is not a story we read in the Old Testament. It's the person and work of Jesus. And uh, this will set the table for uh, Terry's message on Solus Christus here in the next hour. But just listen, Colossians chapter 1, talking about... God and his work through Christ of redemption. For he rescued us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it is the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of, for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, here it is, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Watch this. In order to present you before him, here it is, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. How do you grow in the fear of the Lord? You survey the wondrous cross. And finally, so that awe fear is the response of believers as they contemplate the nature and works of God. But wait, there's more. We need to ratchet up our fear. You need to ratchet up your fear. Back to Deuteronomy and we'll, we'll quit here, okay? This is really amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says this. Chapter 4, verse 10 and we'll come in for final here. You ready for this? You can learn the fear of the Lord. 
You can learn it. There's good news. Chapter 4, verse 10 of Deuteronomy. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me. When you become a Christian, you don't automatically fear the Lord. You start a lifelong learning process. It, it, it really is part of your sanctification. In fact, growing in the fear of the Lord would be another way of describing sanctification. Okay, so we can learn. That's the good news. We must learn. Proverbs 23, you don't need to uh, turn there, just listen. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. We must live in the fear of the Lord always. Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, listen to this, for to those who fear him, there is no want. If you fear the Lord, you won't lack anything, the psalmist says. Now, what does that process look like? You must follow the right process. And this is where I think so many Christians are not doing what God has prescribed to do. They're not surveying the cross, they're not studying creation, and they're not following the right process. Listen listen to how this gets laid out for us so easily in Deuteronomy chapter 31. If you're in Deuteronomy 4, just flip over to 31 and uh, listen to this. This is is the process here. This is the the engine of growth in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 10. Then Moses commanded them, saying, talking to the Israelites, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, and at the feast of booze, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place which he will choose. So every year you do this, right? Uh, excuse me, every, every year at the end of the seven years, right? You are to do this. What are you to do? Read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women, the children and the alien. This is for your kids too. Assemble them. Why? Why are you gathering together? Listen so closely to the process. So that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe His words of the law. There's the process. You hear God's word. You learn it. That creates and leads to growth in the fear of God, and that enables you to obey. And that's so important, guys, because so often we're saying, why do I not want to obey the things of God as much as I should? Why is sin more compelling to me sometimes than righteousness? Do you feel like that sometimes? Why? I think, I think there's a help in this verse. Because sometimes we hear the word of God and we learn it and then we try to obey. And the Bible says that's not how you obey. You obey, obey when you grow in the fear of the Lord. You, you love righteousness. You love to follow God. You love the things of the scriptures in terms of application because you love Him. Because you stand in awe of Him. Because your allegiance is with Him. Because you're worshiping Him. So you hear, you learn, and then you grow in that fear. And that leads to helping you to obey. Conclusion. That verse we looked at in 1 Samuel, when Samuel says to the people, God's not happy with you for asking for a king. Let me prove that. Hey, send some thunder and rain down here. You know, and they go, whoa. 
But that's not how the passage ends. Listen to how the passage ends. God says, through Samuel, to the people, you will not die. Let me, let me just, I'm going to read a little bit of the context here back in chapter 12. You can just listen. First Samuel chapter 12. And he says, after that encounter, he says, listen to this. The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. And then he says this, listen closely. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Listen. For consider what great things he has done for you. So the Israelites are thinking, we're going to die. We just asked for a king. God's not happy with this. And Samuel says, you know what? God has chosen you to be his people. He is going to show compassion. He's not going to give up on you. And you will grow in the fear of the Lord when you consider and contemplate his kind and merciful ways to you, especially when we sin. Isn't that amazing? That occasions of our sin where we are shown mercy are actually the moments that God uses to grow us in that awe, fear, and worship of Him. Okay, so we we see clearly, we inspect His gracious dealings with you, especially when we sin. That's a great little narrative to study. We're out of time, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Will you grow us in the fear of the Lord that we may love and worship and honor and obey you. Lord, work in our hearts that we may stand in awe of you for all of your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.